you are listening to The Book Judge, a podcast about books that you should read if you're interested in business. I'm your host, Conrad Chua. This is a curated reading list to give you a better grip on how to approach the complex issues that businesses face. Now, I love listening to music. I still remember saving my pocket money to buy my first album, a cassette tape of Spandau Ballet's True. Yes, yes, you can go ahead and judge me. What I didn't know was it was also my first criminal act. That album was actually a pirated cassette tape. But to 12-year-old me, that was the only way to get music at the time. And frankly, it didn't occur to me that, well, original or unpirated tapes did not feature poorly photocopied covers. Will Page knows a thing or two about the music industry. He was Spotify's first chief economist, and his book, Tarzan Economics, draws lessons from how the music industry embraced digital transformation. He borrows this idea of companies and industries having to be like Tarzan and let go of the old vine, fly through the air and grab hold of a new vine in order to survive. The music industry was first to be hammered by digital disruption. And Page argues that it was the first to successfully let go of that old model and become digital first. Page uses several economic frameworks to describe how and when this can be done for other companies and industries. Firstly, Page encourages us to think about what your company is selling. It was Peter Drucker who said that the customer rarely buys what the company thinks it is selling. For example, physical books are not read by 80% of purchasers. These books just end up on coffee tables or bookshelves that you see on Zoom screens. It was only with ebooks that publishers truly saw which books got read. It was the same thing in the music industry. As recently as 1990, there were so many intermediaries between the music artist and the consumer. This led to all kinds of distortion in data and behavior. Take music charts, for example. I remember growing up listening to the Billboard Top 40 show by Casey Kasem. It was the only show on Singapore radio that had information about the top songs. Except it all rested on very flawed data. The charts were compiled by people calling the large record stores to find out which albums were selling. The record stores were hmm, incentivized by record labels to report certain albums. Stores might sometimes on their own report underperforming albums as doing well in the hope that these albums will go up in the charts and then they'll get more consumer interest so the record stores could shift more inventory. The charts were also based on radio plays, but that was terribly flawed since record labels might pay radio stations to play certain songs. It was only in the mid-1990s that the charts used EPOS data to find out what was actually selling in record stores that they got a more accurate picture. And it's no coincidence that with this change, hip-hop and rap started to dominate the charts at rock and roll's expense. One barrier to change is the internal organization of companies themselves. Page recounts an early job interview he had with a company selling both laptops and music. He told his interviewer how crazy it was that the company was advertising its latest laptops as being great for ripping music off CDs but its legal and music division were threatening everyone for doing precisely that. Well, Page was not hired for telling this inconvenient truth. 
Another barrier to change is the key KPI or key performance indicator that a company or industry focuses on. For the music industry, that KPI was known as Average Revenue Per User, or ARPU. Page argues that by focusing on ARPU, the music industry lost valuable time in understanding the economics of streaming. The industry was afraid to let go of the old vine of CDs and digital downloads because they were worried that streaming would eat into the ARPU from those channels. Yes, streaming would give them some revenues, but executives thought it would mean swapping higher revenue from CDs and digital downloads for a far smaller streaming stream or revenue stream. What took the executives a long time to realize was that while ARPU from CD buyers was much higher, the pool or the market of CD buyers was shrinking dramatically. They had to let go of that old vine of ARPU and go for the new vine of maximizing reach. Songwriters and artists also had to make the same swing. Page actually walks us through a useful calculation to show the quandary that musicians faced. If a song was played once on UK Breakfast Radio, it could result in a check to the musician of about £150, whereas one stream would only give the musicians fractions of a penny. Looking at it this way, there was no motivation for musicians to switch. But Page points out that when you divide that £150 check by the total number of listeners on radio, then a musician was getting much less per user than from streaming. And of course, many musicians don't get their music played on radio. Once the industry as a whole reached for that new vine of streaming, the rest was history. Of course, just changing a KPI doesn't mean an end to gaming that measure. We see it now in how songs are getting shorter because streaming service pays out if a song is played for more than 30 seconds. And songwriters know they need to pack the biggest hook of a song in that first 30 seconds. Think back to Despacito. It only took off globally when the company brought in Justin Bieber and he only sang in that first 30 seconds to hook listeners into the rest of the song. Streaming has brought down the barriers to entry for artists, so now there's so many more music acts than before. In this crowded space with more and more songs being released every week, the pressure is on for even established artists to produce ever more music. They do this by re-releasing albums, calling them deluxe editions, which only have a handful of new songs or outtakes. It's too early to judge if all this means better quality in terms of the music, but the pressure on individual artists is definitely there. This is the part of the podcast where I place the spotlight on one part of the book that you can use immediately in your business or in an interview or just to impress your business school friends. I call this the Did You Know section. I'm recording this in 2021 where it feels like every competition or monopoly regulator has their target set on big tech monopolies. And make no mistake, these tech, com- tech companies are huge and probably crowd out a lot of potential entrants. 
But the arguments that many of these regulators make seem divorced from what I and maybe millions others feel about these tech monopolies. Because if these tech companies were truly abusing their market position, I would feel a lot more aggrieved at the fees they were charging. But when I look at what I'm paying and what I'm getting in return from the likes of Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, or Netflix, they all seem like such a bargain. And in the digital world, with the possible exception of some of Apple and Microsoft services, the switching costs are minuscule. The main thing that I and hundreds of millions of customers value, the convenience that come from these services. Page gives a framework to describe these instincts. Competition regulators like to see a market with lots of players and consumers switching rapidly between them. In a way, the UK retail energy market is like this, and I can tell you, it's a terrible model. Yes, there are price comparison websites to help me decide which energy company or tariff to switch to, but I can see that this has driven the industry players to compete purely on price. And judging by the customer reviews, the level of service is terrible across the board because none of the companies are incentivized by the industry structure to focus on anything other than price. Compare this to the so-called monopoly picture in digital industries. Yes, big tech occupies a huge part of the economy now, but they're not like the monopolies of old. Big tech grew in industries that had a strong network effect, which meant a winner-takes-all type of game. But instead of increasing prices once they reach market domination, most big tech companies recognize there's more value for them in providing added convenience to their customers. In many cases, this means having a big tent and using their eye-wateringly large profits in one area to spin off into other areas. This is the flywheel that you always hear about. Amazon is a master at this. Customers actually benefit from this convenience. And this emphasis on customer convenience means that tech companies are sometimes forced to open up their platforms. There's no better example than Apple, who's notorious for wanting to own every part of the user experience. Yet, they were forced by their own customers to offer Google Maps and other mapping software alongside their own Apple Maps. Similarly, they offer alternative music streaming services because not everyone wants Apple Music. The risk for Apple is if enough people prefer, let's say, Spotify and are willing to move out of the Apple ecosystem if Apple deprives them of that choice. I'm not saying big tech is all great and should not be regulated. Yes, there needs to be better regulation about how someone like Facebook uses customer data or how Amazon treats its workers. But these companies are very different from the monopolies of old. They've created those two-sided marketplaces and regulators need to reset their expectations. It's ironic that Page argues all this because... As I'm recording this, the EU is pursuing a legal case brought by Page's ex-employer Spotify against Apple's use of the App Store. Yet in the book, Page argues that Apple's 30% cut of App Store revenue it might seem large, but it's actually a reflection of bringing together that two-sided marketplace. And if Apple were to push someone like Spotify too hard, Spotify could leave the Apple ecosystem, and there's a good chance many Apple users would follow. So that competitive pressure works far better than regulation. 
page also includes several insights into how he carved a career for himself and the valuable lessons here for any business student. Page was an unsatisfied government economist. He loved economics, but found the government machinery stifling and unreceptive to his ideas. At night, he was a DJ, and he loved learning about the music business. He wanted to be a rock economist, a job title that he had cooked up. And one day, he was taking the bus home when he picked up a copy of the Financial Times that someone had left behind. He saw this article by Adam Singer, the then CEO of the Performing Rights Society. And Adam was arguing that digitization was destroying the music industry's profits. Page boldly wrote Singer a letter refuting the arguments in the article, and he was, well, surprised when uh, Singer invited him for a meeting. Over the course of five hours, the two discussed, argued, and agreed on certain things about the music industry. Page got his first job offer as a music industry economist, a role he basically created for himself. I found this story fascinating because many students think about applying for a job that is advertised and has clear job specs. But the real career liftoff comes from creating the job yourself. It takes a lot of chutzpah, but if you get it right and if you can convince someone, then you're looking at a role where you are the perfect fit. There's no competition. So think about that as you contemplate your next career move. That's all for this episode of The Book Church. If you like what you hear, I want to ask one favor. Tell one other person about this show. Encourage them to listen. You can subscribe to this podcast through Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, leave a review and rating. It helps others discover the show. Leaving a review will be your way to pass comments about the show to me. Till next time, this is your book judge, Conrad Chua.